everyone is needy. Last weekend, I was watching an episode of Hoarders, as uh, people do on the weekend. And if you've ever seen that show, most of the episodes have to do with the collection that's inside the house. This was different. This was outside the house. And uh, sometimes there could be issues of cleanliness and animals, but this really wasn't the case this episode. Uh, the city was writing letters to this man because his yard, his property was getting more and more and more stuff in it. And in an episode of that TV show, they're trying to do two things. Number one, clean the house, get it in good shape. Number two, try to understand why this happened in the first place. And so for this guy, he had a dream in his heart that had never come to fruition. He wanted to own a store. And so he started his collection eventually to sell those things inside of his store. But his store never really got any momentum, but he kept collecting, kept collecting, kept collecting. And I thought it was really interesting because the things that he had in his, his yard and on his property were, some of them were really nice things. This, these were not junk. These were good things that you could actually sell. But because he didn't have a store, it just grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. And I, I found it so... Um, insightful that he literally had everything that a person could want and yet it wasn't enough because need has nothing to do with what we have or don't have need comes from within so it doesn't matter if you've accumulated everything possible to accumulate or you have ascended to the highest status a person can ascend you will still feel needy the question is, is what do we do with that need? The prophet Isaiah was prophesying hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It was a message of woe and destruction. God's people had forsaken him. They had taken their chances with idols that the nations that surrounded them were worshiping. So God would lovingly send his prophets to call them back to the one true God. And yet each time they rejected. So finally, Isaiah's message comes. Destruction is coming to Jerusalem. Nations are getting ready to rise up. Empires are being raised and they will burn Jerusalem to the ground and God's people will be scattered to the four winds. But even in the midst of that message of woe and doom are threads of grace and hope. And Isaiah chapter 55 is one of those threads. And I'd like to concentrate on the first two verses of Isaiah chapter 55. This is about what life will be like after destruction. And we're focusing on one aspect of that this morning. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. There are a few things that I want you to write down so that you're more likely to remember them this morning. First, as we've already mentioned, everyone is needy. Everyone is needy. Verse one, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters and he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without price and without money. Now, all the things that are listed here that the Israelites are supposed to come and enjoy were staples of their life, water, milk, and wine. These were not indulgences on date night. These were things that they needed every single day, especially the water. Now, the thirst for water is primal. When you feel thirsty, you cannot talk yourself out of being thirsty. 
We see that from earliest ages. Our daughter, Willa, who's two, whenever she asks for a drink, you better get her a drink or she's going to ask and ask and ask until she gets it. It doesn't matter where you are. If you're in a restaurant and the waiter or waitress is not moving quite as fast as she would like, she's going to repeat that she needs a drink until it finally comes. If you're on a road trip in the middle of the interstate out in the country, it doesn't matter that there's not a rest stop or a gas station that's easily accessible. She's going to ask, drink, drink drink, drink. She kind of chants it so your adrenaline starts to get to go a little bit. (laughs) She won't be stopped until she is satisfied. The same thing's true with adults. If you wake up in the middle of the night and you're thirsty, you don't just get to roll over. You're going to be thirsty and awake until you get up and get yourself a drink. It's primal. Now what's interesting is our unmet thirsts, our unmet needs, they affect the way that we relate to God. We see this literally with the Israelites in Exodus chapter 17. If you have a Bible, flip there with me. God has rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt. Now he's leading them through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. All of the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, encamped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink, 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 drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're thirsty. They have unmet needs. So they first lash out. They lash out at Moses. Moses, this is your fault. They even say, why did you bring us out of Egypt? Now remember, they were slaves there. God used Moses to give them the greatest gift that they could receive. And yet now they're frustrated with Moses that he would have the audacity to do that. Any parent who has been thirsty for some peace and quiet after a long day of work, whose children are not participating in that peace and quiet, understand what it's like to lash out with an unmet need. It's in that situation that we're more likely to speak to our kids a little bit sharper than we meant to, a little bit louder than we intended to. Because when we have unmet needs, one of our natural instincts is to lash out at people. They also make some pretty bold accusations. They say to Moses, why did you bring us out here? But it says in verse two, therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us a drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So their accusations aren't just at Moses, they're at God. When we have unmet needs, we will say things about God that we would not otherwise say. Think about how much differently you speak about God when you're counseling someone else in their problem than how you speak to yourself when you're the one having a problem. We'll say things about God to ourselves that we would never say to someone else in a similar situation. Because unmet needs cause us to make accusations towards God. I shared this story with our Spring Branch campus last week on Father's Day. But when I was growing up, my dad's garage was a very sacred place. 
I have never seen a handyman in their home in all of these years. Not one time. My dad was able to do all of those things. And to do some of those things, you need tools. Some of those tools are very simple. Some of them are very expensive. And so I knew what I was allowed to touch in his garage, mostly the garbage, and what I was not allowed to touch, everything else. Last weekend, I walked into my own garage and I noticed how many of my father's tools now fill my garage. And it happened a little bit at a time. Uh, He would get something new. He would pass on something old to me. Or he would just give me something he wasn't using. Now his tools fill my garage. But there wasn't a moment where he took me out to a very awkward lunch and looked me deeply into the eyes and said, now I want to give you these things, a rite of passage. It wasn't like that. It was just a little bit over time, almost invisibly. When we have unmet needs, what we will accuse God of is withholding from us. He has everything in his garage. He sees that we need everything. Why don't you just give me what I need? We make accusations about his character that he's preventing us from having the very things that we want. But if we would take the time to just stop and look around, we would see all that he has shared with us. All that he has given us, almost invisibly, every day, very consistently. But when we have unmet needs, we lash out, we make accusations, and that's because the third thing we see here in this passage is our unmet needs, our thirsts, they skew our perspective. They say to Moses and about God, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Reading it on this side of the experience, that seems ridiculous. How could they say that about Moses and God? That he had rescued them from slavery only to bring them out and kill them and their children and their livestock with thirst. That seems ridiculous. But when you're the one who's thirsty, you can't see clearly. Fear and unmet need are deeply embedded, but they make terrible partners. It skews our perspective on things. The truth is we're all thirsty. The question is, what are we going to do with that thirst, with that need? Which leads us to the second thing. Back to Isaiah chapter 55. Stop striving for what does not satisfy. Stop striving for what does not satisfy. Verse two, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Remember, the message of Isaiah is judgment is coming because you have forsaken God and you've turned to idols. Uh, About a month ago, I brought a list of idols that are referenced in the scripture that Israel was tempted by or at least interacted with. Now, these are just statues, but people believed that they were real gods. And the Israelites would fall into this temptation as well. Instead of worshiping the one true God, they would take their chances with idols when they had unmet needs. If God was not moving fast enough, they would say, well, maybe I'll give this a shot. So if you are a married Canaanite couple and you were looking to start your family, you would make an offering to Ashtoreth, the Canaanite goddess of fertility. If you were an Israelite couple who believed in the one true God, but you were trying to start a family and it wasn't happening as fast as you would like, you would think, well, maybe I should take my chances with the Canaanite goddess of fertility. So you would go and make an offering. It's not that the Israelites believed that these idols were more real than God. 
It just was God was not moving fast enough. They had unmet needs. They didn't know what to do with their unmet needs. So they had a very practical relationship with these idols. Maybe this will work for me. Now, I'm guessing most of us were not tempted to make an offering to Dagon, one of the gods of the Philistines this week. If you have, I'd love to see you afterwards. Our idols have different names. We look around the United States of America and we see that it is in turmoil. God doesn't seem to be moving fast enough. Maybe we should just take our chances with politics and politicians. Maybe we should offer ourselves up to them. Money, possession, status, funds, success, family, acceptance, power, security. In the light of day, we know that these are not real. But when we have unmet needs, we take our chances. Jesus spoke about some of these idols in Luke chapter 12. He says in verse 15, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do, for I have nowhere to store my crops? He said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. I had an economics major in college. I don't remember very much of it, but my favorite thing about that economics major was line graphs. So I brought a line graph to explain Jesus' parable. I hope that was okay. (laughs) What Jesus is saying is that all of us, but specifically this man in his parable, were saying, how can I maximize my life? My goal is to retire and eat and drink and be merry. So what do I have to do to get there? Well, I need to tear down my barns and I need to build bigger barns so I can store more crops, have a source of income on and on and on and on and on. And God says to that man in the parable, you're a fool because you're going to die tonight. Your soul is going to be required of you. And then whose do those barns become? Who gets those crops? Somebody else. So the idea is that we accumulate, 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 accumulate. But the moment that you die, your accounts go down to zero. You have nothing. So if you have a lot of money, as soon as you die, that money's not yours. If you have a lot of homes because real estate keeps its value, as soon as you die, somebody else gets that real estate. If you've uh, eaten and uh, are drinking and are merry, as soon as you die, all of that goes to zero. But when Jesus would teach about his kingdom, he would tell us that there was a way to live that didn't go to zero after we die. That in fact we can have the most even after death. I mean, that's when he says simple but revolutionary things like in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. And in verse 33 of that same chapter, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. If you take your chances with idols, whether it's Dagon or money, Ashtoreth or security, 
whatever you call it, if you take your chances with idols, your account goes down to nothing. You have nothing when you die. But there is a way to live where we can have satisfaction in this life and in the life to come. So how do we do that? Which leads us to the third and final thing from Isaiah chapter 55. Eat what is good. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. God, speaking through Isaiah, says, eat things that will satisfy you. Be full on things that make you full. One of my favorite things right now is a package of Starburst minis. I took Annabeth, our nine-year-old, to the movie last week. She got popcorn. I got a bag of Starburst minis. She ate her popcorn. I ate the whole bag of candy. 700-ish calories. Ate the whole thing. Didn't feel bad about it either. Also didn't go to the gym that day. Probably should have, didn't. As soon as we left the movie theater, we got in my truck and I said, what do you want for dinner? Because those calories didn't make me full. It was candy. It was junk food. What God is saying through Isaiah is those idols that Israel had been seeking, they thought they would work. They didn't work. They thought they would quench their thirst. Didn't. In fact, probably made them more thirsty. So don't eat things that won't satisfy. Eat things that are good. Eat things that you can be full on and will leave you full. Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 is a t-shirt verse. We know it because we see it on t-shirts. You'll recognize it when I read it. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You may have heard it. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. As I mentioned, it's a t-shirt verse, and I have owned a t-shirt with this verse on it. When I was the president of our FCA in high school, Fellowship of Christian Athletes, that was the theme. They sent me to summer camp, Philippians 4.13, theme of the summer camp. They gave me a Bible at summer camp on the Bible, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, right there on the front cover. If you remember Tim Tebow, he made some Bible verses very popular because on his eye black, he would write some scripture references. One of those references, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. So the idea is that if you want to succeed in athletics, Christ can give you strength to do that. Also, it, if you are huge and athletic, that also helps. If you are scrawny and untalented, I don't care how much strength Christ gives you, you're not going to make it to the NFL. <laughs> and the reason I could say that is because when you go back and read Philippians chapter 4, you see what Paul is actually talking about. He's not talking about sports. Listen to this in verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Paul is writing to the Philippians. He's, this letter says, thank you. Thank you. Because people would support Paul. They would send him care packages. Sometimes they would send him money so he didn't have to go and get a job, but he could totally focus on making disciples and starting churches. Sometimes people would send members from their church to just go and hang out with Paul for two months, three months, six months, sometimes years, just to be an encouragement to him. The Philippians, they didn't have an opportunity for a while, but as soon as the door opened and they were able, they sent some help to him in some way. And so he's saying, thank you. Thank you for that. But then he says... Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. So he's saying, I'm not bringing this up to try to talk you into giving me more things, because actually, I'm in a good spot. 
I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What is Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 about? Through Christ and his strength, we can have extravagant contentment. Paul says, I have abundance even if I don't have abundance. And I am content even if I have a lot. I'm not sure there are very many things more difficult in this life than to have contentment and the resources to give yourself whatever you want. He says, it doesn't matter. I know how to be content if I'm hungry or if I'm full, if I'm rich or if I'm poor. And and Paul's words carry a lot of weight with me because he's writing this letter from prison. In fact, that's how he starts the letter, talking about his chains, literal chains in chapter one. He's saying, I'm in chains, but I'm content. When we think of contentment, or at least I do, I think of that saying that parents tell their children, you get what you get and you don't throw a fit. The point is, is uh, I'm giving you vegetables. You're not getting chocolate ice cream. You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. I don't want to hear about it because you don't have everything that you want. That's how we think of contentment. I don't have anything. Just get used to it. You're never going to have anything. I don't have any friends. Well, you better get over it because you're never going to have any friends. You get what you get. And you don't throw a fit. But that's not how Paul talks about contentment. He talks about it in terms of abundance. He doesn't feel sad that he's in prison. He's not saying, woe is me because I don't have anything and I'm just getting used to it. He says, I know how to be content the same, whether I have a lot or I don't have anything. Whether my situation is hard or my situation is easy, I stay the same. Because contentment is not the result of whatever situation you're in. Contentment is the result of the state of your mind and your heart. Just like need comes from within, contentment comes from within. And it comes from Christ who's able to give us strength. And verse 2 in Isaiah chapter 55 ends with... That kind of thinking when it says, listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Delight yourselves in rich food. God isn't saying, come to me and I will satisfy you with broccoli. He's not saying, come to me and I'm just going to give you what's good and you'll hate it. You get what you get and you don't throw a fit. No, he says, come to me. I have what will satisfy you. You can delight yourself in it. And it's rich food. What God can offer us is not only what's good for us, but is what, are, what is also good. And how would Israel know when life after destruction was beginning? How would they know when this invitation was available for them to receive, to come and be satisfied, to come and be full? Well, just two chapters before we looked at it two weeks ago, God said, I'm going to send my servant, my servant who will be bruised and crushed, my servant who will wear stripes. A step towards radical, extravagant contentment is a step towards Jesus. You know, we're that, not that much different than the guy on that episode of television. 
most of us have way more than we need. We're just better at throwing things away. We have way more than we need, and yet we still have unmet needs. Today, we have to stop striving for what will not satisfy. Take a step towards extravagant contentment by taking a step towards Jesus. Let's pray.